are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is the rector of St. Albans Episcopal Church in Glen Burnie, Maryland. She's also an astrobiologist and planetary scientist specializing in understanding how planets do or do not evolve into habitable environments. And she's presently involved in the exploration of Mars with the Perseverance rover and its companion, the Ingenuity helicopter. She's explored extreme environments all over the Earth, including in the high Arctic, Antarctica, Death Valley, and the deep sea hydrothermal vents of the Pacific Sea floor, to name a few. I'm very excited to welcome Reverend Pamela Conrad to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. What a wonderfully unique bio. And like Ian yeah. said before we recorded, he even, he even removed some to make that a, a little bit shorter for an intro. <laughs> moved, some of our, moved some of the intro to the questions. Um, <laughs> you are certainly one of the most eclectic people I think we've had on the show. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think I told you, uh, Pan, when I first reached out to you that, you know, uh, one of my fellow parishioners of my church that I go to, Holy Comforter Episcopal Church here in Charlotte, sent me the Episcopal News Service article about you from a little over a year ago in your work. And so uh, that's why I knew I had to reach out. And so I, the first question I'd really like to address is if you can kind of share your journey with us, you know, what motivated you to study astronomy, and, and I believe you got a PhD in geology in 1998, and then decided uh, to pursue ordination in the Episcopal Church, and that was, I think you, you were ordained in 2017 in the Episcopal Church. And so, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your journey? I'd love to. I'm going to make it a little bit more summarial than maybe you're looking for, so you can certainly <laughs> poke at the items of interest, because it's a long and twisted journey. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't trade any of it for anything, but I believe that at our heart, all of us biological organisms are explorers. And so if you love exploring and learning new things, all the ways of knowing that are available to us are attractive avenues. So I've done a lot of things because Life is short, and I want to do all the things and learn all the stuff I can before I go to whatever is the next level of the video game, so to speak. <laughs> so I started out as a tiny child loving science and loving music, and I wasn't sure which thing I loved more, so I did them both. First I did music, and then I did media production, and then one day when I was making a film about um, some science topics, I passed through a building at a university because it was raining. I had my video crew with me, and we passed a showcase of mineral specimens, and they were gorgeous. And I said, wow, I'd much rather be doing science than making a film about somebody else doing it. Hmm. So I went to school again studied science, and that was a lot of fun. And what I really was interested in was an interdisciplinary kind of science where you do a little of this and a little of that and put it all together to ask a big question. So I hit on geobiology. But, and I know, Ian, you will understand this, when you are at a university and you are a graduate student, you have to be associated with a department that has funds for you or mm -hmm. you don't get funding. 
And so there is no take a few dollars from Department X and Department Y and put it together in a student. So I picked geology, figuring that if I had a solid foundation in some specific discipline, I could bring that to the table in some interdisciplinary effort after graduation. So I went from music to video production to science. When I finished graduate school, it took me eight years because an undergraduate degree in music doesn't really impress people in a science program. <laughs> and once that was done, I thought, oh, never, I'm not going to get a job. I better figure out some way to support myself. And um, I can't believe it. It just dropped into my lap. A friend said, ah, oh, I have a colleague, great guy, establishing a laboratory in astrobiology. It's like mm -hmm. geobiology, but with space. <laughs> and I said, I'm in. Introduce me to this guy. So he was in town to serve on a review panel. And I'm on my way to a bike ride. It didn't dawn on me that maybe I should show up looking like a job applicant. <laughs> so I stroll into this hotel wearing my biking gear. I left off the shoes with the bike cleats. And uh, it turns out this guy is a triathlete. So that oh. worked really well. Yeah. And we talked about music and we talked about science. And I explained that what I really want to know is the relationship between planets and living things. Because I don't think you can understand an organism outside of its environment. And he said... Okay, I want you. That sounds great. So that's how I got a job in science. And one thing led to another, and he had a, a role in preparing for a Mars mission. This was the Mars Exploration Rover's Spirit and Opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then he left the laboratory. Uh, this is the Jet Propulsion Lab in California, Caltech. And um, when he left... I ended up assuming some of his responsibilities and working on ways to detect, if there is any, life on Mars. So now wow. I'm sure you want to know, okay, how does church get involved in all of this? Yeah. So I have always had a strong spiritual inclination, and I did the um, obligatory post-college uh, I don't think this is for me. I don't think I want to be a church lady. And I um, a church lady. <laughs> well, actually, the that's part of it. Another part of it uh, is um, my particular church had uh, a beloved pastor who took it upon himself to let a woman who was, shall we say, irregularly ordained celebrate Holy Communion, and he was disciplined over this. And I thought, don't you know who this guy is? This guy is awesome. How could you do this? And I said, I don't think Jesus would agree with this. And so I'm out of here. I'll just be a freelancer. Hmm. So I left for 34 years. While I was doing science, I realized that I kept feeling a call to serve community. I was on two different search and rescue teams. Hmm. And that didn't feel like enough community. And finally, I decided one day I would attend a protest rally over some restrictive um, legislation on the um, 
on the docket in California. And I saw these different camps of religions protesting for and again. And this one particular van of people pulled up with a little child. And they were like really nasty and using vulgar speech and disrespectful. And I thought, whoa, this is awful. My mother would have slapped me if I'd talked to an adult that way. <laughs> and I said, well, I can't really say much because I walked out of the church in a hissy fit. And if I had stayed, maybe I could have been a voice for sanity and for treating people the way I believe the gospel commands us to treat people. And just like that, I said, I'm going back. So that began the journey back into a faith community. I started where I had left, at the Episcopal Church. And so one thing led to another. I ended up going to seminary and deciding that, yes, I think I would like to go for leadership and perhaps taking this broad view of understanding a little bit about a different way of knowing that is the science way of knowing mm -hmm. and putting that together with the heart way of knowing might bring something beneficial to the formation of community. Is it going to look like church or synagogue or mosque as we know them? Don't know. But as we can see, the world's hair is on fire, literally. <laughs> and so if we care about that, I think we owe it to this little blue marble to do what we can. So that brings us to today. I left out some of the dirty details, but that should give you the gist. Well, and I, uh, you know, you know, as I said before we started recording, you know, your your background is absolutely fascinating, uh, and just the journey you've taken to get to where you are now is just amazing to read and hear you tell us about it. One of the things that really stood out to me was your experience out in California uh, that you just described. You know, I um, am a member of an Episcopal church. I, I am someone who've said on our podcast multiple times that I have a lot of questions and doubts about Christianity um, and struggles. And when I see some of the, you know, predominant or the loudest people in our country uh, who claim to be Christian say some of the hateful things that are said, there are days where I really struggle with it. Um, and so just hearing you tell your story and, and how that helped guide you back to this community, it makes me very appreciative of you, even more so, right? Because it is a tough time right now, I think, uh, hmm. to oh, just see so much hate. And Ian, I think you've probably experienced this in an academic institution, the games that go on with regard to tenure dossiers mm -hmm. and the meetings to figure out when the next meeting will be hmm. and some of the ways in which People uh, step on top of one another for publication credits when they didn't even write any words in the publication. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things are everywhere, and the question is why. Right. Yeah, I and I don't. Uh, so you know, as a science educator, uh, you know, I'm still expected to publish and do all of those things. And you know, where I got my PhD, I saw more of that. Um, in my department here, I'm very lucky to be in a place that you know. Yes, we we need to be publishing research. Um, but you know, I, I've, I've been here now since at UNC Charlotte since fall of 2011, and I've just been continued to have been 
uh, to be amazed by my colleagues just because of how instead of a more cutthroat type environment, it's a really supportive environment and collaborative environment that I just highly value. And I tell my future teachers all the time that when they find a, a space that they're happy to be at, at teaching, you know, my bet will be one of the reasons why they're happy there is because the supportive environment that they have and the supportive colleagues. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, I'm very fortunate and I recognize that. Yeah, I was just going to say because you are in a great spot and may all of your teachers that you form find themselves in an equally great spot. Yeah. I love that you said that the world's hair is on fire, by the way. <laughs> what a wonderfully evocative image. It does feel that way, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Especially with the, the warming of the poles. You know, it's like our hair and our chin is on fire. Maybe you saw there were several images published recently in National Geographic Photos of the Year. Mm -hmm. And one of those photos was an array of dead giraffes in a Ooh. desiccated watering hole that became more and more viscous because it became more muddy, and they just died. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at that picture of the dead giraffes, and I think... Well, why isn't our hair on fire to do something about it? You know, that what I tell people, you know, to me, you know, the, the God that I believe in calls on us. This is how I believe it works, and I don't know if I'm right. Um, calls on us to help every, every species, to do what we can. So not, I don't believe that I'm supposed to be in charge of everything. And that every, you know, my resources around me are for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I want to live in with in unity with other species. And, you know, of course, people will be like, well, what about, you know, predator prey? I get all of that. That's different. But to see, to hear that story and see those images that just um, can really break your heart. I'm just, as you said, why how can and, we prevent that? Why can't we prevent that? Because of capitalism run amok. Right. <laughs> Yes, I, I suppose we'll get down to it. <laughs> so, look, here's the deal. We, as creatures that are part of a system, a biosphere, multiple smaller ecosystems that all fit together in one big critical zone that encircles the globe, everything is related to everything else. It might be over a longer time constant that makes it hard to recognize just right. how our local effects will propagate throughout the globe, but it's also the physics of the universe. We, in the physics that we understand presently, believe that everything really is connected to everything else. And if you go through the various holy writings, not just our Bible, the Hebrew Bible that we use as an Old Testament and the New Testament in Christendom, and also, if you take a look at the Book of Mormon or you take a look at Quran, you understand that the sages always have interpreted these writings to tell us that everything is related to everything else. Mm -hmm. So with both science and a multiplicity of Abrahamic faiths, we must recognize that everything is related to everything else. There is no choice but to care about that because it's the bathtub in which we're all bathing. <laughs> That's another spectacular image, by the way. 
imagining the whole earth earthen ecosystem as one muddy bathtub. Huh. So life on earth is spectacularly diverse and resilient. Um, and it is just worth protecting, even if our lives didn't depend on it. Um, how how prevalent do you think life itself is outside of Earth? Well, the, the short answer is I don't know. Well, yes. The slightly <laughs> longer answer is I hope it's prevalent. I don't think from my perspective, and this is opinion, which I could be wrong about, uh, I don't think it's a one-off because I think the the increasing complexity of chemistry as you go from the initial formation of the chemical elements and stars, galaxies, um, once you begin forming these rocky bodies around stars, you get this evolution of chemistry. And you go from just tiny little simple gas molecules to minerals, to minerals that then change and become more complicated minerals. And then you get really weird cycles of heating and cooling and all that kind of stuff. And the chemistry becomes even more complicated and mature. I think that the formation of organic molecules now is understood to be common from the weathering of rock material. And so once you start forming those kinds of chemistries, you are a short hop away from becoming a biological chemical. What is that missing link? We've got lots of opinions, but no one has a clue. Our models don't come up with a satisfactory explanation yet. So I think that in the planet-forming um, process, we probably form life. Will we detect it in our lifetimes? I don't know. I, I would love to meet some other stuff, um, but I don't know. You think it will have an effect on global faith in God if we detect, if we discover life outside of our sphere? Absolutely, because we're so anthropocentric. <laughs> and... Uh, I remember uh, after one of these press interviews that happened a couple of years ago, um, some guy wrote on his blog that I, a priest of all people, should know that God values the human being above other types of life. Hmm. And I thought, wow, I thought God said all the stuff that got made was good. Yeah. <laughs> and so whether or not there is a hierarchy, I tend to think that we— love uh, forming taxonomy of value, and we can't stop doing it. There's got to be some um, adaptational advantage for doing that. I don't know what it is because I think it's dreadful. But I think God values everything and that it's our job to figure out that it's not like a piece of breakdown furniture where sometimes you get an extra part, but it is all parts are necessary in the universe. And so part of our job is to find out what the parts do, why they're there, but most certainly and fundamentally, what is the specific value of each part is irrelevant. What is important to know is that all the parts are valued. Hmm. It does seem 
in in the uh, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures that humanity continually makes taxonomies of value, and we make hierarchies of good, and then God consistently decides to set up camp in the lower regions. Just yeah, time right, and time Zach. again. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's very explicit in. Well, right now we're recording uh, in between weeks one and two of Advent, and uh, we're we're getting ready to tell the story of peasant baby Jesus boy born in a, a manger. It's pretty obvious right there that Jesus is on the side of the the lower end of the mm -hmm. the value, not real value, obviously, but uh, assumed value. So, um, if we can just step back for a minute, yeah, you know, you're work with the um, Perseverance rover, Ingenuity helicopter. I know you worked with, you know, with the Curiosity rover program as well. What what do you do for those programs with NASA? So what's your work like? I am really fortunate in that I have an opportunity to explore another planet. And that's with Curiosity first and now Perseverance. And the reason why that opportunity is so important for a person of faith is to understand what happens when a planet undergoes a really bad day. Hmm. The first thing is to understand that a long time ago, um, maybe 4.1 to 3.9 billion years ago, there were a whole host of protoplanets, big bits of stuff that either started to make a planet and couldn't finish the job or just for other reasons couldn't become a planet, went flying through the inner solar system. And that's why we see pictures of non-Earth planets littered with craters. That's how our moon is. That's how Mars is, Mercury and all the like. We underwent the same bombardment here on Earth. But look, us, look at us now and look at Mars now. There's two things to be learned from that. One is things can go wrong. Two, what does it take to make you resilient to those really bad days? And three, what can we learn about Mars that we can't learn about Earth because the dynamic nature of the Earth's surface is such that our deep past is buried well, Mars's deep past is not buried. It's kind of the silver lining of that death and destruction cloud from the late heavy bombardment, which was that swarm of asteroids that came through the inner solar system. Mars was smaller than Earth. And so, unfortunately, when it got hit, it couldn't recover. It lost its internal dynamo, that is the circulation of the um, molten rock. And it lost the magnetic field, which allowed energetic particles from the sun and from galactic cosmic rays to essentially strip away the atmosphere. And the only atmosphere that Mars presently have is a really thin little, uh, I was going to say a scum of carbon dioxide, but it's, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to add um, a derogatory connotation to it. It has a very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere, and we look at that and we go, well, nothing could live here. We shouldn't take that perspective because we don't know what indigenous life may have appeared and become adapted to that. 
But what we might speculate on is that when Earth developed its biosphere, perhaps Mars did as well, and then maybe it went into retreat, and maybe there are microbes that live subsurface. We get that on Earth, not for the same reasons, but we get in a look at mechanisms of survival for when things go wrong. So what I have learned is that, indeed, everything is still related to everything else at multiple spatial scales, planetary ones, solar system-wide. Perhaps um, we, going in the other direction, would understand that whatever happens on the surface of a planet is related to everything else on the surface of the planet, and so on. So if, if nothing else, these space missions give us another data point to look at what happens on a planet over time. Hmm. So I... I this is the first that I'm learning that it was that early bombardment that stripped Mars of its um, uh, dynamism. Um, what's the what's the mechanism of that? How how can you hit a planet so hard that it's no longer magnetic? Well, first of all, when you undergo a big trauma, you can remelt. Uh, for example. That's something that could have happened in the moon-forming event of the uh -huh. early Earth. Um, so if you're small and you remelt and you cool, perhaps you would cool too fast. The center of the Earth is very hot. Um, I don't. Uh, this is getting out of my field, so I don't know the temperature at the center of Mars, but depending upon the chemical constituents, and we, we believe that Mars is core and mantle, are more iron-rich than Earth's. So depending upon um, some of the thermodynamics of that, the chemical constituents, the temperature, the pressure, et cetera, um, those conditions could cause a situation where the planet cooled too much, and so you don't get all that motion and convection of heat. So if you lose your heat too quickly, um, bad things can happen. And one of those could be the loss of a magnetic field. And mm -hmm. because of the energetic rays that just come from the galactic cosmic rays, but also from the energetic particles of the sun, those do dirt <laughs> on an atmosphere. Um, ultraviolet rays alone are pretty uh, harsh on mm -hmm. delicate chemicals. So that means we're probably not going to be able to terraform Mars. Right. I don't believe we're going to terraform Mars, no. We wouldn't be uh, able to keep an atmosphere. <laughs> no. Un unlike Matt Damon, I, I don't think we're going to be growing potatoes in the Martian soil because, <laughs> first of all, the reason why soil is soil is because it has a lot of bacteria in it that is not part of the Martian regolith. Mm. Strictly speaking, people argue about whether or not to call it soil, but the Martian finds, let's say. Okay. Um Although Matt Damon did get it right in the movie that you really need to put your poo in there. Yeah. But there's no good reason to believe that poo would thrive in that collection of conditions. It so, would have been a lot shorter. It would have been a lot shorter. It, it's a great uh, film, and it's art. Science mm -hmm. is that you would have a very difficult time terraforming Mars could you put in a colony and survive the conditions of Mars? I think you could. I think it would be like putting in a space station. 
or perhaps a subterranean colony. But a permanent presence? No, it would be like McMurdo Base in Antarctica. You send some people down for a time, you bring them back, you send other people and so forth. Mm -hmm. So do you think, you mentioning that with McMurdo Base, I mean, you hear about like, you know, right now, and I forgot the name of it, the mission uh, going around the moon right now. Artemis? I forgot the name. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Artemis. And, you know, with that, with the goal apparently to, uh, you know, have to establish a base on uh, the moon. And, you know, I, th- I feel like I read years ago uh, with the hope or goal, you know, obviously to take humans to Mars. But, I mean, so is that possible? <laughs> do you, I mean, I mean, obviously not yet, but I mean, is that still kind of the goal, do you think? Or It is the goal. Okay. So one of the problems we have to solve before we can send people to Mars is how to bring them back. Right. <laughs> so the mission that I'm involved with now is preparing samples to be brought back. So first oh. we've got to safely bring back tubes of rock and soil before we attempt it with a human. So that's underway, the plan for that, and that won't be for a while As is often the case, we learn things, we get new technical capabilities. I don't think the mission will be moved sooner, but I do believe in the 2030s that will happen. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I remember when I was working on my PhD at University of Virginia, one of the professors on my um, committee, my dissertation committee was an astronomer. And, you know, he and I would talk a lot about these types of things. And, you know, he was telling me that you know, at least for him personally and many astronomers, he knows that, you know, for the science part of it, that this you get a lot more rich scientific information and stuff by sending the probes out, you know, the rovers and those types of things because they're cheaper. The risk is not nearly as high as it is sending humans, right? But I think he said something like the funding, you know, the excitement of sending humans back to the moon and eventually to Mars, is so high that can help funding or something. like. And that's not the whole purpose of it, obviously, but that that's where the excitement comes in for the general public. You know, hearing about another rover, to me, I think it's amazing when we keep sending rovers there and the way we land them and the things that we do and you just sharing that the goal is to bring samples back from Mars. And, I, you know, I had forgotten that. And so I think that's very exciting. But I know that not the general public tend to not agree with that. Yeah, I think your your professor was right. There's a certain um, allure to thinking about human explorers. And of course, we would all love to go to exotic places and mm-hmm. just get the gestalt of them by, you know, geologists are famous for licking rocks to see yes. what the texture feels like. And, you know, we can't lick a rock um, and get away with it <laughs> on Mars. Yeah. Those moon rocks are... Very carefully guarded. Yes. but I, I need to know if someone has licked a moon rock. I am willing to bet someone has, but yeah. I don't know that for sure. We did reach out to Buzz Aldrin, but they turned us down. That's so. probably because we were going to ask him that question. Yeah. He knew he'd get busted. <laughs> I love that Mars is the only pl- known planet to be inhabited entirely by robots. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot of stuff on a satellite right now. I guess we can't count the Galileo spacecraft and its 
sad demise on Jupiter. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, and so that brings me to, to an, another question. You know, with respect to astronomy in general, and obviously, you know, with with your work as planetary scientists and astrobiologists, there really is a lot of fascinating things going on right now that NASA is involved with. Um, you know, as I, you know, the the mission to send the um, the orbiter around, not the orbiter, sorry. Um, what's that mission again, Zach? Around the moon, Artemis. Artemis. Yeah, that yeah. mission. Then obviously the James Webb Space Telescope and all the amazing things we're learning from that. Um, I think there was the DART mission or something like that before mm-hmm. where it hit the comet, mm-hmm. if that's right. Um, yeah, there's DART. Yeah, there's OSIRIS-REx, which brought back samples from an asteroid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then obviously all the rovers. And, and I remember, so I was a high school science teacher uh, when Spirit and Opportunity landed. Um, I was teaching... Yeah. Um, earth science and astronomy, and I was getting my students to watch that, and I was so excited. Uh, I was running all around the house, and when it landed, I woke up for it. Um, and so each time that there's been, uh, you know, a rover going, and also, too, back to those two, how long they'd last, especially opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just everything we learned from them and, and realizing curiosity is still going, perseverance is there now, obviously. You know, what is it you hope, like, what are the things that you're like, oh, man, I really hope we're able to do this with hmm. any of the still existing you know, curiosity or perseverance or even future missions? Well, I think one thing that everybody would like to see happen, including me, is find some evidence of life. Mm-hmm. That Setting that one aside, because we don't know whether we will or not, I think just seeing more and more and more of Mars, because we've seen precious little of it, and... You can't um, build a model about a whole planet from inside a crater. Right. So uh, one of the things that excites me about Mars is that as more and more countries begin to explore it, we'll just have a larger data set. And the more we know about the dynamics of that planet and how um, things fluctuate on a seasonal basis, a diurnal basis, and over longer cycles of time— we'll get a good understanding of what it's like to be on a planet that's not ours. Mm -hmm. And that way, we'll begin to see which cycles tend to be the same amongst terrestrial planets because we'll be visiting Venus soon again. And we'll have a better sense of the variety of conditions that we would have to withstand if we were going to go on a longer journey, either with a robot or with a human crew. And the further away we get from our own home, the more we can understand what is the same and what is different. I didn't remember, or maybe I'd not even heard about, you know, more missions to Venus. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. We got to check out that phosphine. I know. So, and is that, because obviously, if I remember correctly, the ones, the probes that were sent there, you know, they, if anything landed, it was, they were able to send back data for a very short amount of time before <laughs> the pressure it melted, destroyed it. Right. So, um, is the in hope, I guess, with the, you know, obviously with our new understanding, new knowledge and new technology is to be able to land something there that will stay for a lot longer or? I couldn't really say. Um, okay. 
that sort of a NASA programmatic thing, and I don't follow that literature well enough to know, but I can't imagine that it isn't a hope. Right. Because we can't see down to the surface. We need to send something and get beneath those clouds. Imagine the cooling system you would need and (laughs) the heat shielding you would need to survive that kind of pressure and heat on the surface of Venus. Not to mention the analytical techniques that would be affected by pressure and temperature and how one would mitigate for that. So it is a challenge, but it is a thing we need to understand if we really want to understand the whole environment of our solar system. Right. Yeah. Some beautiful human somewhere is spending all night just dreaming up ways of getting that sort of data. And they're just so excited to be alive in this time that they can solve these problems. And I just love that so much that these sort of scientists and engineers out there who just get so tickled by these problems. (laughs) Zach, you are absolutely right. And I actually know some of those beautiful humans who do study Venus and they do exactly what you say. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad to share a planet with them. (laughs) Yeah. People are people are wonderful. We don't we don't give people enough credit. We're so focused on their being bad and fallen and nasty people that I just think people in general are just a wonderful species. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, and I have to say I don't buy the whole fallen thing very much, which I realize is a heresy. Is uh, it? But I don't care because God created entropy, and so it has a purpose. And if you think about it, uh, as things move and they lose heat, uh, there are more combinations of things together, more relationships between materials. So if you really want to have a dynamic universe, which we have, where all things are possible, you have to have entropy. And so if disorder is something that gives one heartburn, um, we need to rethink that. (laughs) I don't think that's a heresy at all. I think that is that is pretty good doctrine to me. I mean, yeah. you just need to throw Augustine out the window. And, you know, he's <laughs> had his time anyway. Well, throwing Augustine out the window would be like throwing Miller-Urey out the window uh, for how we got organosynthesis on the earth, right? And I think that the value of people interpreting what they see is that we know who has had thoughts and we get to decide whether we agree with them or not. Uh, I don't like um, some of the doctrine I read from this, that, or the other divine, but mm-hmm. I also find some of it beautiful. Hmm. And so uh, it's a both end, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, usually is. Anything that draws you deeper into the mystery and deeper into love, uh, I think is worth pursuing. That'll preach. Ah, well, anything Let's... anything good, anything true, all, anything beautiful, what is it, pursue, think about these things, ah, I, it's in there. Yeah. <laughs> See, even Paul came up with some pearls. Yeah. <laughs> I won't throw Paul all the way out the window, um, even though he made some kid fall out the window, but that's a, that's a different story. That's another story. That's another story for another day for our Bible study <laughs> episode. Uh, so, Pan, if I may... You know, with some of you, know, we've been talking a lot about your science work uh, with NASA. Um, I read and, and when doing a little bit of homework on you, you know, I saw that you've given talks to different um, people and you know organizations, I guess. And 
and somewhere I, I read, it may have been that first article I read about you, but you talked about um, seeing a role for the Episcopal Church in dispelling the myth that science and religion are incompatible. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Because that, I, so I've taught several classes at my church with my former rector, and I uh, did a, a few other Episcopal, another Episcopal church uh, near me. And that's something that I have said a lot is I really feel like the Episcopal church can do a lot to help show that science and religion are not, are, are not at war. And so I'm just curious, can you elaborate on that and what you would hope would happen? I'll be glad to. This topic is my passion. And I think that back in the day when we had one of our early uh, theologians, Richard Hooker, he was talking about the foundations of Anglicanism. And he articulated that it wasn't just Scripture, although Scripture was to be our sole authority, that was a statement against papal authority, that the application of reason to understanding Scripture together with tradition was a good foundation and the basis for how one could describe Anglicanism. So we incorporate reason as foundational. I think we can go beyond reason in the interpretation of Scripture to applying reason to ecclesiology, reason to our Christology, reason to our relationship with creation. There are just a multiplicity of ways where we can apply reason. In fact, even into liturgy. Look at how many of us leaped onto WebEx as soon as the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. So, I believe that since we articulate that reason is an important value to us, well, we should use it. And right. so in in looking at this hair on fire situation of global warming and subsequent dramatic weather events, these are the kinds of things that should guide us as we think about mission in the future. Can Episcopal churches become community resources to provide, say, a shower, electricity, internet in times of, well, let's face it, we have a lot of climate catastrophes. Mm -hmm. And so with these big buildings, which are tending to become more and more empty, how can we turn that around for the public benefit? How can we become, ironically, more like a Celtic monastic community where the church was at the center of this circular community and provide benefit to the community without needing to draw the community into the walls. Yes, I live for those questions. Mm-hmm. As, uh, um, I, my wife and I planted a church uh, just a couple of months ago, um, founded on the principles that the church is entering into something new, some new age, uh, that we're, we've we've left the world of of Christendom, where the church is by default the center of everything, because by force, <laughs> you know. Um, but now we're asking ourselves, what would it look like if we actually were? What if we actually were serving in the center? What if we were the loudest voice for the environment and for mm-hmm. reason? What if we are the loudest voice for uh, allowing people to think and ask questions and um, what if we spoke out against the matters of of injustice in our world today? And 
one of the things that we think about a lot is all of those empty churches <laughs> that we're, we're kind of a hermit crab and we're, we're just going to move <laughs> into spaces that we fit into. And I think the future of the church is definitely going to be hermit crab churches, as it should be, moving into all of the rundown strip malls in America. But That's I a wonder... great visual. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I wonder then what happens to all those giant shells, because the architecturally they're so specific. You can't just turn them into a CVS, um, plus all of the historical issues with, you know, what you can and cannot do to the insides, and then the energy inefficiencies. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm partial to just tearing every single historical church down and planting gardens, but that's hasn't flown well when I've floated that idea in my Yeah, I'm thinking groups. about I think some people would not like that. Well, well their well, loved ones are often scattered in the front yard and things like that. <laughs> you, you know, Zach, yeah. scattered your in question... The front yard. <laughs> well, it's true. Hopefully you... underground. <laughs> <laughs> well... That's a whole other topic we could discuss. But the fact is, that is a big draw. People have memorial gardens and, yeah. you know, the dearly departed are, in their mind's eye, still somewhat intact, even if it's ash. And yeah. so we have to understand that that ground becomes sacred for more than the reason of it being a church. It becomes an important um, sacred space in their own family's life. Yeah. However, you're 100% right in thinking of the questions, what do we do with the shells? We know what nature does with them, and maybe we should look at that. And, and what you say really um, strikes a resonant chord with me. I'm thinking of Isaiah um, speaking on behalf of God, saying, see, I am doing a new thing. Do you yeah. not perceive it? Yeah. And if I were the reporter, uh, talking about this on camera, I would say, okay, do you perceive it? Do you perceive it? Hmm. What is that new thing? We should be so excited to get up each morning and ask, okay, what new thing is God doing today? And that's just like doing science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love this, this story of a... Uh, a historical Baptist church in the Philadelphia area that had this giant building in a really rich suburb, and they weren't using even a tenth of it anymore. Their congregation dwindled down to 20 or so, and they took it upon themselves that they were going to undergo a metamorphosis. They were going to stay together, but they were going to be something new that better lived into their uh, convictions. And so they sold their building, and they took all of the money that they made from it, and they bought a smaller building in a more poor neighborhood and took all the profits they made from that to change out all of the windows in the new place, to cover the ceiling, cover the roof with solar panels, to install um, like geothermal pumps in the place to the mm -hmm. point that they are energy, um, they have an energy surplus that they, they sell back. Oh, year in and year out, they called themselves the Green Church. And they took even more of the resources they had left, and they, they got rid of all disposable cups, and they bought customized mugs with everyone's name on it and then a bunch of other names for visitors. They bought um, like customized towels because the, the parsonage had a swimming pool, and 
they decided to invite people to go swimming after church. And they just owned the fact that they were going to be a small church. And they said, well, what, what can we do as a small church that in a small space that we actually fit in that we couldn't do as a small church pretending to be a big church in our old historical building? And so they just died and they were reborn as something new and beautiful. And that is such a great witness. And they don't plan to be a big church. They want to be a small church. That is an intimate space where they can make a difference in their community and they can uh, be this environmental city on a hill for others. I just love that as a, as a future vision for a church that is no longer the Church of the Crusaders, you know. <laughs> That's a great yeah. story. Well, I feel like with some of the things that, Zach, you talked about what you wished for the church, and uh, this kind of lends itself nicely to asking you, Pan, about your work um, on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland, mm-hmm. if, if you don't mind shifting. No, another yeah. passion. These are all my yeah. geeky things that I love. <laughs> you know, it, it's really hard to imagine how a country can survive— now, this is what I consider to be the original sin of accumulating wealth on the backs of kidnapped and enslaved peoples. Yes. Hmm. And so we have some serious soul-searching to do to atone for that. So if we were ever going to apply the term fallen, I would apply that term to um, a mistaken sense that we don't have to take personal responsibility for the labor that produces goods and services that we think that we could exploit another person or a beast or just mm. palm it off elsewhere. Yeah. And so I think that um, the Episcopal Church is now coming to a season where it recognizes that it's worth, uh, and when I say worth, um, that's not really the right word, uh, that it's wealth uh, has accumulated over eons, generationally, the way families accumulate generational wealth, um, on the basis of owning slaves. Uh, Mm -hmm. All the Episcopal churches had glebes and slaves, and many of the original rectors personally owned slaves or were given slaves as compensation. And so this is a history with which we have to reckon And the subsequent systemic and pervasive racism, I don't mean bigotry necessarily. I mean racism in that I believe that people don't even recognize the levels of racism that, um, again, we swim in the bathtub surrounded by it. (laughs) And I think that as we have begun to realize it, we try to think of ways to atone for that, to to come up with a baptism that um, changes the future. Our baptismal covenant says mm-hmm. we've got to do that. And so what that looks like is kind of up to us. And it is an example of taking our personal sense of responsibility and using it to figure out how to establish relationship that is not exploitation. 
Dr. Catherine Meeks of the Absalom Jones Center in the Diocese of Atlanta um, has this wonderful um, sentiment. She says, you, you can't reconcile a relationship when you don't have the relationship. And so we have to learn to have a relationship between people, not, um, not a transaction between an institution and labor. That's a dehumanizing way of looking at it. The institution doesn't take a personal responsibility. It's some kind of a structure. And the, quote, labor, unquote, uh, is people that we dehumanize by not giving them names and thinking of them as individuals. So I believe there's much to do in this respect. I believe that in particular... The coming need for climate disaster mitigation is going to disproportionately harm communities of color and that we have to think about how we can, in specific, use churches in those geographic regions that communities of color can get to because they often uh, have become food deserts or other service deserts and use the power of community particular beloved community, to make an even playing field so that those um, things that are coming with more tornadoes, more heavy winds, more extremes of temperature will not disproportionately affect communities of color. Yeah. Your image of, of using baptism in that way is so spot on, too, that the baptismal liturgy says that we, just as we the baptism signifies dying with Christ and rising with Christ at the same time and inheriting that that new life right the i think even the lectionary this week is we're in John the Baptist and the calls for repentance and in order to be baptized to be changed into something new we have to we have to own up <laughs> admit to the the original sin um, which, it, of course, in this case, I don't mean that you're born with sin in your in your consciousness. We're talking about the original sin of of racism and slavery in this country, mm-hmm. and the Episcopal Church in particular, since that's where I live, and yeah. apparently you do too. And mm-hmm. the thing is, <laughs> the early history was not very nice. It was the Baptists and the Congregational churches that were in favor of abolition. The Episcopal churches knew they had a lot of wealth tied up in slavery, and they were very slow yeah. to address it. I started, uh, I think it was last, this was fall of 2021. Uh, you know, we were still in a mix of uh, some classes. Some of our classes were face-to-face. Some were uh, online. And it just was obviously still a very challenging time in our country. Um, and, uh, I start, I did start a series on racial reconciliation with my diocese here in North Carolina. Um, but finally, you know, with the expectations of the readings, um, and just the, my own struggles with my mental health at the time, I had to finally pull back from it because I, it was just, it was taking too much energy out of me, if that makes sense. I was at the time just trying to stay afloat with my work. Um, and I finally, my worry was and my wife has described it well when talking with members of our church that, you know, when I try to take on something, uh, especially something like that, I, I 
go in full force. You know, I dive in and really want to get out of it what I as much as I possibly can. And I can't remember the name of the program right now, but something that I want to pursue again because it was all about, you know, the role that the Episcopal Church played in that very troubling history and the things that are trying to be done now to make up for that in some way. So it's I'm when I saw that you uh, are chair of that uh, group in your diocese, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I just was very excited to see that because it's something that you know is also a passion of mine. So our our group was chartered by our bishop, and he wanted it to be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, not too unlike the model of South Africa, mm-hmm. um, if it were. Uh, the Pan Club, I would have renamed it to Truth Telling and Transformation Mm. because in a dynamic universe, the work of transformation continues always. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at it less as reconciliation is an end state that we want to achieve and more as I want to continue to grow and transform, I think that's much more... um, accurate a depiction of what we are called to do and to be. Right. Yes. And if we can get people to accept responsibility without needing to accept blame, then I think we can get people further along. Because that's what you just seems where it, white folks get tripped up. Where mm-hmm. it's like, well, I, I, I didn't I didn't own anybody. I didn't own any slaves. I shouldn't have to worry about blah, 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 blah. But it's it's the same as, you know, I, I didn't burn coal in the 1800s, but you know, this is the world that I live in, and so I need to modify my life to mm-hmm. help to rectify problems from my Victorian ancestors. But I have responsibility, even if I don't have blame for the thing. Right. Right. Which is very and theological, so too. Well, it it is very theological. And so that gives us all an opportunity, if we believe that everything is related to everything else, then that gives us agency, because it means what we do has an impact, even if across time and space we can't see it because of the limitations of our senses. Right. I like that. Um, so we're kind of coming near the end of our time, and uh, there's so many other things I wanted to talk with you about and just ask you about. Um, but we liked it when we have guests on. We really like – well, first I'll ask you this one thing. Is there anything else that you – would want to share or that you wish we had asked you about? You've covered all my high spots, the things I love the most. We didn't talk about <laughs> peanut butter or chocolate. but Which we can do that because that's one of my favorite combinations ever. Another time. So. <laughs> yes, we, we, we can save that for another time. Yeah. But but I will so, say that uh, you did an amazing job coming up with questions that have to do with all the things I care about. Well, thank you. I... You know, uh, both Zach and I, the, the way this podcast got started is we were both part of the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship out of New York City, and our other co-hosts were as well. And that, and our our fellow, our year, uh, our two-year stint ended in 2019. And Zach and I kind of approached each other and just said, hey, we don't – and the whole idea was to uh, help prepare us to be able to continue down this road of science and religion – uh, and continue to do work. And I knew I, you know, th- that fellowship for two years kind of scratched an itch. And I just was like, I need something. 
And so Zach and I had gotten to be really close friends. And I just kind of said, hey, would you want to consider doing a podcast? And he was like, I thought the same thing. And so then we approached others. And that's where Down the Wormhole came from. Right. Um, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. You got peanut butter yeah. on my chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so the last question I would like to ask you, we've asked this to several people. What do you wish that everybody knew? What a fabulous question. <laughs> I wish that everybody knew that there is no place in this universe you can go where you could disconnect from everything else in this universe. And moreover, I'd like to remind people that if God created the universe, it resides within God. And God is that force that is making everything move and grow mm. and transform. So connection is where it's at, and we have to look for them when we can't see them. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. And thank you for giving me spiritual language for entropy. That is <laughs> wonderfully helpful, and I will be probably borrowing that in the future. Yeah. Feel free. <laughs> well, it has been a great joy uh, for me uh, to talk with you today. Absolutely. I love talking about this stuff, and I do appreciate this invitation and also to get to know you a little bit and Zach to get to know you a little bit. It's really fun. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you again, Pam.